podcast by Animal Concepts and the Practical Animal Welfare Science, the PAUSE platform. I'm your host, Serena Brando, and today I am delighted to welcome Elisabetta Palaggi, who is the Associate Professor at the University of Pisa, whose research focuses on social and sexual behavior and mechanisms underlying empathy, such as rapid facial mimicry and emotional contagion. Welcome, Elisabetta. Oh, hi, everybody. Thank you for inviting me, Sabrina. Yes, very much looking forward to this podcast and hearing about at least some of the aspects of so much of the different research that you are doing. And we always like to start the podcast with a short story, an early story of you connecting with an animal or with the natural world. So perhaps you could share that with us. Okay, thank you. Uh, that's a funny question because I, I grew up in a, in a farm, uh, in a very small farm uh, with my grandpa and grandma. And uh, I had a lot of opportunities to interact with animals, especially domestic animals. And uh, I remember that when I was uh, young, very young, uh, I ran against the uh, chickens uh, because it, they were so funny when they were running around. And, um, but I remember that I started to observe them in order to understand uh, some part of their behavior. And I remember that I didn't understand why when they were fighting together, suddenly they started pecking on the ground without any apparent reason. So um, in the middle of a fight, they stopped and uh, began to peck, in on, to peck on the ground. And uh, I was wondering, okay, but why do that? Uh, and, uh, and that's incredible because uh, during my first lesson of ethology, uh, at the University of Pisa, when I was a student, university student, I began to understand why, and uh, I found the answer to that funny and so uh, peculiar behavior. Um, so I'm used to stay with animals, but especially not to stay because I don't have any pet in, in, in my apartment because I think that pets require a little bit space and I cannot grant it for it. But um, I'm extremely interested in observing animals, domestic animals, wild animals in their natural environment, adults in captivity. They are absorbing me a lot. Wonderful. Yeah, and that's clear from a very young age, you already had like questions about why is this happening, right? And you were obviously observing those details. And I'm, I'm very glad that you mentioned that you know, obviously when we live in smaller places or in an apartment, you know, we can choose what, you know, sorts of animals or what individuals might 
uh, have a good quality of life in an apartment or indeed to decide not to uh, have any animals because you feel that that space isn't appropriate so and that that is such an important point that you shared with us thank you so much and you mentioned that you obviously you were already a student at PISA and now you are an associate professor so you've spent um, so many many years of studying and uh, but can you talk to us a little bit about your background and why or how you came to study uh, animals? Yes. yes, thank you for your question. I um, I have a master's degree in uh, biology and uh, a PhD in evolutionary biology. And with for my master thesis, I discuss you know, a topic entitled Astrosociality and Friendship Among Chimpanzee Females. And uh, for my PhD thesis, uh, I discuss um, this is uh, I defend this is uh, titled Adaptive Role of Social Play Behavior and Use of Play Signal in Pantrogloditas and Pampaniscus, a comparative study. So um, I was, I have been fascinated by, not by a species in particular, but by uh, a specific, beha specific behaviors in particular. And um, after, immediately after my, um, my master uh, degree, that after, immediately after my master degree, I uh, had a position as curator on mammalian section at the Museum of Natural History at the University of Pisa. And uh, during um, those years, I was able to uh, go on with my ethological research, but also to have a, a very good background in zoology. So I curate the uh, list of mammalian and uh, many other uh, taxonomic groups at the museum. So I had the opportunity to learn a lot about zoology. And this was extremely helpful to me because uh, it enlarged my, uh, my view uh, about animals. Of course, ethology and animal behavior remains my first topic and uh, um, they are so pervasive in my life. Uh, that every everything I do in my life, in everyday life, is linked to my to my job, to my work. I'm extremely lucky because I live in a family where both my husband and my son perfectly understand what what that what what it means to me. So um, during uh, the first year, I I was have been working in in the in the museum. I uh, began to observe uh, a, a, a very small study at the Pistoia Zoo in Tuscany, um, where a colony of lemurs, ring-tailed lemurs, uh, was hosted. And I began to observe lemurs, and uh, this is, was the first uh, occasion to me outside my um, my. Mm, university pathways so uh, that I was able to um, organize by myself on my own. So um, I started studying lemurs um, after, after my job during my three hours of the day and uh, I presented my project at, the, at Göttingen at the Deutsche Primadenzentrum 
uh, where Peter Kappeler and uh, Eckhar Eyman helped me to and encouraged me to go on. So I began to publish the first paper. Uh, the first paper uh, for me were extremely timid, so very, very simple question and very, very small steps. But um, then when I got a PhD, I began to understand that we could answer a little bit more uh, ambitious question and I enlarged my vision. So I started with great apes uh, and then uh, also I tried to, and now I am embracing many different kinds of species uh, that I am studying in a comparative perspective. Wonderful. Yes. When you look at, you know, the range, um, obviously with this podcast, there will be a link to your Google Scholar page and, and the university so people can look up, you know, what your work uh, has entailed and what you're doing right now. And, and I really uh, like how you also specified that obviously you have studied a wide variety of species, uh, but you're also really focusing on specific topics and, and both in a captive in zoos or aquariums or in other facilities, and of course also animals in the wild. And perhaps you can, you mentioned already lemurs and great apes, and I know you have done some work on marine mammals, but perhaps you can talk a little bit about um, some of these topics that you have studied. So you mentioned friendships, for example. What can you tell us about friendships and, and in, in which species, for example? Okay. I focus on friendship um, and I study uh, the, the friendship degree between individuals by focusing on grooming behavior, especially for primates, uh, but also on agonistic support in monkeys and also um, great apes. Um, and uh, we uh, focus also on wolves um, to understand uh, if agonistic support is a good measure of relationship quality between individuals. And uh, in other species, we selected a contact sitting or body contact in general to evaluate the quality of relationship between subjects. So it depends on the species. We can use different measures to evaluate the level of friendship. Um, and. Uh, or if you want to use a more neutral terms, we can also speak about uh, relationship quality. It depends on the on the scholars you are you are speaking for, uh, with. So um, yeah. anyway, um, I decided to also to look at non-primate species uh, because I think that comparative research can uh, go on by two different steps. So we can select very, very close species from an evolutionary point of view, but with different characteristics and different social constraints in order to understand which are the, uh, the, the, the potential behaviors they enact and to understand if this behavioral trait depends on the evolutionary continuity between the animals. So they represent a homologous trait, or in other cases, they can be uh, due to more uh, evolutionary convergences. I mean, okay, if I study reconciliation in a, in a species of primates, maybe, okay, let's take, for example, chimpanzees and uh, wolves, social wolves, we have that these two species are far 
from a phylogenetic point of view. So uh, there are dual mammal species, of course, but they uh, belong to different uh, groups. And, um, but at the same time, they show a high level of sociality. So they need to solve their conflicts if they want to maintain cohesion within the group. So the hypothesis was, okay, if reconciliation is an homologous trait and it depends on the very strict uh, phylogenetic relationship, okay, I, mm, it is highly um, improbable and is not so likely to find reconciliation involves. But if reconciliation as a behavioral trait is present in two species that are far and distant from a phylogenetic point of view, but strongly, uh, they, but are strongly similar in the um, management of their social group. I think that reconciliation can work for both. So, and and that what it was we we found. So quolls are perfectly able to reconcile that conflict, uh, as well as other species of primates. And uh, this helped us to understand that when sociality uh, is developed in a species and when the first thing uh, that a species need is to maintain the group cohesion, also immediately after an aggressive event, reconciliation works perfectly. So this is the, probably this is the, um, this is the reason why almost most social species this scholars studied for reconciliation uh, show this kind of phenomenon, right? So if you take, for example, on the other side of species um, where the cohesiveness uh, uh, is more driven by others, other factors such as, okay, we, um, we need to stay together uh, because we are forced to stay together because we feed on the same tree, for example, or a species in which uh, the relationship between individuals are extremely despotic. So they are more arranged according to hierarchical structure and relationship more than affiliation. Okay, reconciliation is not so expressed. So uh, that's why normally I focus on the topic I select different model species depending on the phylogeny, depending on the social similarity, and then I uh, try to test some hypothesis and prediction. Wonderful, thank you so much. I really like how you, you know, talk about different uh, scholars, different um, people in general have different ways of approaching um, and, and words that we use. So whether we are comfortable using the word friendships or uh, relationship quality. And I was wondering, so you talked about agonistic support and, um, and body contact. So various things that you can look at. So, in, in zoos and aquariums and also out uh, in the wild, people use um, social network analysis, for example. And can you talk a little bit to um, not just how often do animals interact with each other, but also you talk very specifically about the quality of a relationship. And can you talk a little bit to that topic, please? Okay. Um, the relationship quality is not easy to... Um to measure, okay, and to quantify. There are different 
lines of thought uh, in, uh, in, in those that study animal, uh, who study animal behavior. Um, a way is that uh, I, I'm trying, I think I'm trying to, to do is that also to evaluate some form of uh, uh, motor mimicry between individuals. Um, motor mimicry is uh, an important phenomenon that in some cases can be predicted and can indicate emotional mimicry, so emotional contagion. I mean, if I, if I uh, laugh a lot with, and you don't know the reason why I'm laughing, uh, it, is, um, it is likely that you begin to laugh with me. Also, if you don't know the exact reason and motivation of my laughing. And uh, this is why uh, we are able to uh, replicate and resonate uh, um, the behavior of others. If I uh, enact uh, a facial mimicry response, so if you laugh and I laugh too, I'm able to enter in the same mood you, that you are experiencing. So motor mimicry seems to be predictive of emotional contagion, although it is although emotional contagion can be also present without mimicry. So the two phenomena are not so strictly dependent, but in most cases, modern mimicry is a means to uh, reach an emotional contagion. To be, um, to be fine-tuned with other people, and uh, the same is true for many different species of animals, especially social animals, is extremely important because if I feel that the other subject uh, is suffering pain, I can do something to help him or her. And it seems that one of the behavior that, for example, Franz de Waal uh, considered um, driven by sympathetic concern is consolation. Um, consolation is defined as a form of comfort that a third subject enacts toward what generally toward the victim. Uh, to try to alleviate distress in the victim. Uh, psychologists, behaviorists are uh, discussing and debating uh, if this um, behavior and motivation enacted by, the, by the, 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 the third subject is due to actually uh, reduce the stress in the, in the receiver of the comforting gesture or better is the is a form of egoistic um, production of behavior because if I help you uh, and you uh, uh, improve your emotional state, uh, your emotional state resonates in me. So uh, at the same time, I am able to feel better. Okay. Um, that was the the. The, the psychologist calls the separation between the object and the subject. It is almost impossible to understand if a bonobo uh, comfort and producing comforting gesture and directed comforting gesture towards another bonobo. And uh, it is impossible to say if in that moment, in that precise moment, animals are disentangled in their uh, uh, emotional sharing. I think that nobody can do that, but also with humans, it's absolutely impossible. 
But what we, what the behavior and what the outcome of the behavior is that, okay, there are some behaviors that evolve, specifically evolve, okay, to improve the emotional state of subject in my group. And this is, could be extremely beneficial, not only for the subject who receive the comfort ingesting, but also to those that provide comfort ingesting. And this is why this form of behavior probably evolved. Yes, and can you tell us a little bit, you know, you talked about um, various emotional contagion and uh, in a way like, for example, uh, to console, to have concern and comfort. Can you talk to us a little bit more about what do we mean when we say emotional contagion? Okay, and in the, in the, the emotional contagion phenomenon implies that two subjects are able to experience the same emotion uh, almost uh, immediately in, in a concurrent way. So I feel uh, the pain expression on your face. I perfectly understand the situation and I reproduce your same face. And at the same time, Thanks to this motor reproduction and resonance, I can feel the same. So this is um, an incredible, powerful means to put and maintain subjects linked to each other. Uh, the most important form of emotional contagion and which is considered a basic block, a basic building block of empathy is, for example, between mothers and infants. This is the first form and most profound, maybe, form of empathic uh, relationship in the, um, in the subject life history. They but when, when the baby uh, grew up, uh, is able to expand these fears, not only to the mothers, but also to other people. And that's why we are able to, uh, to engage in empathic behavior also with strangers in many, many, many times. It is not so frequent, but it, it is possible. Yes, and you know, there are you know, a lot of different examples out there of animals you know, either wanting to com comfort each other or help each other. And you already mentioned there might be various reasons for it, but you know, can you talk a little bit to what what species are we talking about? People are always kind of talking. Okay. To okay. The uh, I, yeah. Okay. Sorry. I um, I work on consolation and triadic post-conflict behavior in great apes, uh, also in geladas. Uh, uh, that is a species living in Ethiopia. Uh, it is not a baboon. Geladas is uh, old world monkeys, uh, completely different from the other baboons, but also on Tonkin uh, macaques uh, that show the behavior of consolation. Instead, when we focus on Japanese macaques, we realize, and um, not only um, my group of research, 
found and arrived at the same results, but also uh, other um, other researchers such as uh, Franz Deval, Philippe Aurelien, and others, that Japanese macaques and those macaques that are extremely despotic do not engage in the consolatory behavior. You can find consolatory behavior in those species which rely on, on tolerance uh, for the development of their social relationship. So if the relationship are tolerant, normally you can you have a high probability to intercept and to find uh, consolatory behavior. Uh, but also wolves. Wolves are uh, um, uh, extremely attentive to the um, uh, to the other, uh, to, to the emotional state of the victim. This can be also simply due, because, due to the necessity to maintain a group homeostasis and stability, because we perfectly know that wolves can be highly aggressive and it is, um, it is important to maintain a relaxed uh, relationship within the pack if you don't want that the pack is completely destroyed. And uh, uh, wolves are extremely cooperative. So dominant needs to coordinate, for example, for rearing of offspring or for territory defense or for hunting. So it is extremely important that the pack stay um, uh, cohesive. Um, Elizabeth, yes. Can you, before you continue, explain what despotic means for those who haven't yes. heard that term before? Yes, okay. Um, there is, although it seems it could be uh, interpreted as a philosophical word and very distant from scientific purposes, the term despotic means, uh, for example, that in a, a species show low level of grooming. Um, a strong bias in the distribution of power, for example, you don't find generally uh, bidirectional aggression, but you find unidirectional aggression. So if, if you are a victim, it's difficult in a despotic species that you can, can counterattack uh, during an agonistic interaction. Um, other, um, other characteristic reside in uh, a very, very few level of grooming, as I said, or um, also that avoidance is extremely uh, frequent, uh, also without the, also without any kind of uh, uh, aggressive uh, uh, intention uh, by the um, the most important subject in the hierarchy, so the, the most hierarchical subject and dominant subject, but uh, you simply uh, can uh, record uh, a, a very high level of deference uh, by subordinate toward the dominant subject. Um, so it seems that hierarchical relationship uh, governate many aspects of the social life of animals. On the other side, when the, the distribution of power is um, is not so so steep. So it is uh, when the, the, the power between individual, the delta power between individuals is not so high, you can have a species with more relaxed interaction. 
uh, at that point, what is matter is that the investment of affiliation um, in the relationship. So you can increase, you can see an increasing of grooming. Um, you can see an increasing of bidirectional aggression because I am not. If you if you attack me, I am not afraid and not scared of you, so I can counter attack. Um, animals are more relaxed. Grooming is much more present between individuals. And uh, you can see also a high level of reconciliation after uh, the, um, the agonistic events. And also uh, you can record consolation. So there are several characteristics and, and parameters that we can use to define a species, a, a certain uh, the despotic level of a species compared to another one. Of course, the term tolerant and despotic cannot be used in absolute sense. So you can say, okay, this species is more tolerant than the other one, but you cannot say this species is tolerant, okay? Because it doesn't make sense. Yes. Because we don't have any absolute scale yes. to refer to. Thank you. And I was wondering, so you have talked about your work with a variety of different primates. Uh, you mentioned wolves. And um, could you also talk a little bit to us about what you know uh, from other, you know, taxa, not necessarily your own research, but in, in what species people might think, oh, yeah, of course, it's mammals. But, you know, can you talk to us about birds or other taxa in which uh, on where we can potentially find uh, similarities. Okay. Uh, are you speaking about uh, consolation in a specifically or um, other kind of behavior? Yes, or, or emotional contagion um, in general. Okay. Uh, one of the most fertile fields to identify emotional contagion and motor mimicry is play. And uh, when, when I talk about, about play, as normally I talk about social play. Social play is a peculiar behavior. Most mammals play during their um, image phase, but we found that some, in some species, other play is also present. Um, I don't speak about, I don't, I, I don't talk about uh, adult play as um, in the form of, for example, of mother-infant play. Of course, mother play with their infants in almost all the species we uh, tested. But in some cases, we can also find adult adult play. And our species is, is the most iconic species uh, in which the phenomenon is present. So we play uh, during every uh, phase of our lives. And uh, we found also that it is it can be true also for other species, uh, both for primates and, for example, bonobos. But also in Tonka macaques, we found that adult-adult play is more expressed compared to Japanese macaques, in which is almost absent. Uh, wolves play a lot um, in adulthood, but we also found that macaques so, uh, can play a lot. And um, recently, we found that, uh, and we published very recently a paper on spotted hyena, uh, the data were collected in the wild, and uh, we found that although uh, with less frequent, 
but adult adult play is present. So it seems that uh, this kind of behavior can have many different functions depending on the age in which it is, um, it is expressed or um, the kind of sociality or the exact moment in which it is, um, it is present. For example, play can be useful to reduce social stress. Uh, it has been recently demonstrated also uh, by Martinos Berger in horses, and we demonstrate that in, um, in Marmosan, for example. And we also found, for example, that in Shifaka, in the Proctitacos Barauxi, and this study was conducted in Madagascar, uh, we found that uh, just before uh, the reproductive period, when some males can roaming across different groups, try to enter in the group and to have access to reproductive females, uh, the males, the resident males, begin to play with those uh, stranger males. So you have at the beginning a peak of aggression, but when play starts immediately, um, you have a decrease in the agonistic conflict. So it seems that in some cases, at least, play behavior, social, behavior, social play can be used to as a um, as a nice breaking mechanism. Okay, we I don't know you. Uh, uh, we are probably competing, but since you are here and I cannot do anything to uh, to keep you apart from my group. Okay, let's play and and see. Um, Spotted Aina, for example, engage in a lot of uh, fighting, um, play fighting, and it seems that this kind of activity helps animals to build relationship and to uh, um, uh, develop relationship with other subjects with whom they, the, the subject will have to compete in the future. So, uh, in, in a sort of, okay, know your enemy if you want to have uh, uh, some chance with him or her. And, and the, the most important and the, the wonderful thing regarding play is that it can assume so many different functions. And that's why it is not so easy to define. And that's why it is not so easy to study because it requires a lot of time plays out totalic uh, cannot be for an animal cannot be forced to play but all play an animal engaging is um, arising the animal absolutely spontaneously you can you cannot force any animal to play so uh, it means it, it means that you have to spend a lot thousands hours awaiting that animals are motivated to play Yes, yes. And as much as it is wonderful to watch the animals, I'm sure uh, one of the characteristics researchers have to have is a lot of patience. And, uh, and of course, sometimes you, you see other, other behavior, other things happening uh, while you wait uh, for play. And perhaps you can talk to us a little bit about, you know, there's various ideas around, you know, why animals play. And um, could you talk to us about immediate and delayed aspects of play, for example? Yes. Um, an animal 
for for play to be um, adaptive and useful for the subject. The subject has to place um, the session in an appropriate uh, temporal sequence. I mean, um, uh, we'll work on uh, the um, on bonobos and chimpanzees, um, but also on wolves, and we try to understand uh, if animals begin to play immediately after or a period um, uh, before, earlier, sorry, um, the, the, the food is distributed. Okay. Uh, in captivity, uh, feeding time can be a moment of uh, characterized by high social tension because especially uh, if the food, if food is distributed in a clump way and not dispersed way. And this is normal because in the wild, animals have to compete because not only not, not all the resources are distributed in a dispersed way, but animals can also compete because, uh, for example, you have just only one tree with red fruit. So food is concentrated in, in a spot. And uh, it can occur the same in captivity. Um, and we found, what we found is that, for example, uh, to celebrate the, the, the arriving of food, uh, more or less 20 minutes before food distribution, chimpanzees increase their grooming uh, session. On the other side, when we look at bonobos, we found that bonobos, uh, have a peak in their playful interaction, especially adult bonobos, just before feeding uh, distribution. So we can say that in some cases, uh, and it, it depends on the species, um, you can have that, for example, in this case, play and grooming seems to do, uh, seems to have the same function. So try to uh, lead animals in a more relaxed way when the food will arrive, okay? So it, it is a sort of our aperitif. Uh, so when we meet together with friends, uh, just before a dinner, uh, a social dinner, we take an aperitif all together. Uh, okay, this period probably it, it's useful to break the ice and to arrive to the social dinner in which we are very close to each other because we are around the, around the table. And we, it is also possible that uh, uh, a stranger can sit very close to me. So I need a breaking, uh, a breaking aperitif uh, before to arrive to such situation. If we break the ice before, earlier, uh, we can arrive uh, in a very relaxed way when the food is present. And uh, we found that normally, if animals have the uh, opportunity to celebrate and anticipate with a feeding behavior of play, the moment of feeding times, uh, normally the aggression are lower compared to when animals uh, does not, don't, don't have that opportunity. So this is uh, an example of how grooming and play can help in uh, solve some uh, problem related to distress in animals. Wonderful, thank you. And of course, you know, um, 
people will know you're Italian. I'm half Italian, my mother is Italian, but I can tell you this example, you know, using the aperitivo, which, you know, many of us uh, love to do, you know, after either work or in the weekend or something, you know, to, and break the ice. <laughs> and yes. So either show up later or, um, you know, do something else. I will always remember uh, your story now uh, for, you know, onwards when I will have an aperitivo <laughs> with my friends and family so thank <laughs> you so much for sharing that so you already mentioned you know this playing like if you're unsure about uh the other or you know can you also talk a little bit um and it's slightly i guess different in the sense of other as in other perhaps objects or situations but to manage uh, xenophobia by playing. And perhaps you can start by explaining what um, xenophobia is in your research around that. Yes, um, that, that was the study on Shifaka and uh, xenophobia uh, uh, can, can be defined. Okay, the term is, uh, I think is a very common term and popular term, uh, uh, sadly uh, in this period, because in some cases we can, see uh, a lot of uh, xenophobia um, behaviors in humans. Uh, when you are afraid by what you, for you it's completely unknown. And uh, animals have the capacity to, uh, to overcome xenophobia. They have means, they have tool, behavioral tool to do that. Uh, for example, play is one of them. Um, when individual, uh, if you live in a, in a relaxed society, in a tolerant society, when an individual, a new individual, uh, entering contact with you, uh, you can have the chance to compete with him or her, you can have the chance to attack, or you can have uh, the possibility to enact some behaviors, try to uh, increase the knowledge of the other subject. And uh, that's what that's what play uh, and, and play function in this in this way. It, it perfectly worked to um, to know uh, other in a relatively safe manner because when we play together, uh, we are perfectly able to understand the intention of others. So if you cheat during a, a playful interaction, uh, it is. Uh, possible that I don't want to play with you anymore. Because if you are a cheater, uh, I cannot trust you. But if two subjects begin to play uh, in a very fair way uh, by using the appropriate, uh, um, the appropriate signal, such as facial expression, play faces, uh, or other body posture that clearly signal that you are that yours are damning intent and not harmful intent. I play represent one of the most uh, safe uh, field uh, to increase knowledge of each other. And this is true also for our children. So if they have the opportunity to play, they can increase their knowledge and they can develop strategies to avoid conflict, for example or if conflict arise, like can develop strategy to solve that conflict. Play is a, a very important tool uh, to invest in the future. 
Yes. And I was wondering if you could deepen the discussion on play, because of course there's, you know, rough and tumble play, sharing motivations, lots of aspects that people, if they want to learn more about, they can certainly, you know, look at many of your publications. But one of the things that I'm particularly interested in to hearing on this podcast is about social tolerance and adult play. Okay. Um... Um, play uh, is frequent in uh, between adults when they need a way to increase the knowledge and to increase the trustfulness uh, between each other. Uh, I mean, um, normally uh, adult adult play is considered a form uh, an expression of uh, neoteny. So neoteny means that uh, you um, mature, sexually mature, but maintaining some characteristic that can be morphological, but also behavioral characteristics, typical of the major phase. Okay, so we are the, uh, we are the, an excellent example of that. Bonobos are um, more neotenic compared to chimpanzees. They have a delay in the development of uh, adult characteristic, behavioral characteristics. So uh, they become, we could say that they become adult later compared to uh, chimpanzees. And uh, this what probably uh, the, the, is at the basis of the uh, retainer of uh, a maintenance of adult adult play, um, which is a characteristic uh, strictly linked to tolerant uh, species. Um, I think that when you need all the possible means, social means to increase knowledge about other people, about other subjects, um, without enter in direct contrast with them, uh, you can increase your affiliation, you can increase play uh, interaction, play interaction, and so on. Um, if the relationship between adult subjects are strictly codified by one group, so everything is already decided, you don't need to improve and to invest in a, in a such a, a time-consuming activity, an energy-consuming activity because you perfectly know that you can also increase your knowledge to, um, uh, of the dominant individuals, but you remain subordinate. But in those species in which it's possible, and a mixture and uh, um, uh, you have the possibility to overcome in some cases, and uh, in which it is difficult to understand which is the dominant, which is the subordinate, because this, the thing can change very quickly. Uh, in this case, uh, playing with, uh, with each other can be extremely useful. Thank you. That is really interesting. And I think, you know, you already mentioned it's uh, very costly, it's time, um, you know, demanding. 
And at the same time, of course, you also talk very much about, you know, the enjoyment that animals can, can get from play. And perhaps you can elaborate a little bit about perhaps some of the behaviors that you have seen that indicate uh, how much animals seem to like playing and actually not seem to like, but yes. like playing. Okay, we, we should say that it's difficult to enter in the mind of an animal, okay? But we can read their behavior and we can interpret their behavior. The fact that play is a, an apathetic behavior and the spontaneously erasing the, in the performer, this is the first thing that tells us that it is, uh, it could, it, it can be fun for animals, okay? And extremely self-rewarding. Um, uh, okay, when, you should say, okay, but uh, also feeding, mm, feeding is a, a, a behavior that is, is autotelic. When an animal is hungry, uh, strongly hungry, they, it begins to, to eat, of course. But in this case, you have a specific goal. And the behavior of eating is uh, extremely adaptive. So if you don't eat, you can survive. For play, it is a completely different matter because um, uh, apparently you do not, you don't can uh, um, identify any uh, specific reason why an adult individual uh, uh, engage in a playful interaction. Another important indicators are. Um, the playful expression, the so-called play faces or relaxed open mouth. We are uh, still debating if they are controlled or they are spontaneously emitted. Probably uh, both uh, are true. Uh, so we can smile and animal can, uh, can engage in a play face to uh, uh, to uh, to limit the arousal during play, or to to tell to the other to the playmate, okay, I'm joking, I'm playing. Uh, but it's also there is also the possibility, especially when we see, for example, mother tickling the, the babies, uh, that that laughing and that play faces and those play faces are the expression of an emotional um, mood. So uh, there are also some papers showing, for example, in rats, that um, some researcher uh, trains some rats to play the game of uh, hide and seek. And uh, they found that uh, uh, rats uh, don't want to stop playing, although the, the, the reward uh, um, was tickling, but what rats want to do is that go on with the, with the play and they immediately run beside another uh, opaque panel to, uh, to hit themselves and, and try to go on with the play uh, interaction with humans. So there are increasing uh, data uh, indicating that play is uh, a very self-rewarding activity if you want to use a technical term instead of a funny activity, but I think it's the same. Um, 
uh, I think that play, due to its multifunctionality, is far from uh, being completely understood. We, I think, I'm, I'm sure that we'll discover a lot of things. Uh, and, and, and studying play behavior will give up the possibility to enter also in the, in the mind of animals. So uh, neuroscientists, uh, uh, ethologists, psychologists are focusing on this specific uh, behavior in order to understand which are the proximate causes of it, but also the ultimate causes of it. So I think that in the next future, uh, all, all people will, that will focus on this uh, specific behavioral trait uh, will provide a lot of interesting findings. Yes, absolutely. It is such an ongoing uh, field and, you know, more and more is discovered, as you mentioned. And of course, you know, you are um, organizing another uh, conference or symposium um, in Erice in Italy in 2023. Yes. So we'll make sure also to link to that. And perhaps you can briefly say something about that event and what, um, what the purpose of it is. Okay. So the title is Play and the Evolution of Creative Societies, because uh, we really think with, um, together with my uh, co-organizer, uh, Josh Shank, uh, Gordon Burgart and Sergio Pallista, um, we are thinking that uh, studying play and accumulating information about play will help us understand uh, um, cognitive innovation. And um, when, when you have a, a very plastic uh, um, abilities to, uh, to face new challenges and you are able to find the strategies and tactics to solve some problems, you can be extremely, and you become extremely creative. And we think that play is at the basis of the evolution of um, creativity in animals and humans. So the, the main focus is, is, is this one, but we uh, we try to approach the topic from different angles. So we have psychologists, sociologists, philosophy, um, philosophers, uh, also modelists, because we are trying to uh, to get advantage from, from these new mathematical approaches. I, I'm not good in mathematics, but we'll, in Eritrea will be people that uh, will be perfectly able to manage the topic. And also neuroscientists, ethologists, and um, cognitivists. So uh, I think, I really think that it will be a very important uh, contact point between different disciplines to try to understand something more about this fascinating uh, behavior. Wonderful. I already look forward to it. I hope I can make it. And Me be too. <laughs> So before we move to here, you know, we're almost going to the end of this podcast and I would love to hear a little bit more about uh, your collaborative book. But before we move there, can you share if you like had a surprising finding in your work with primates or other animals, like through your research all your years, have you got like a surprising finding to share? Oh my God, this is, maybe this is the, the most difficult answer uh, the question to 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 reply. Um, it's difficult to say because 
um, in my mind, every piece of the puzzle is important. So um, for a comparative ethologist, every species and every result obtained in different species on the same topic represent a, an important piece if you want to have the holistic vision of a phenomenon. Of course, if, if you if you have that, okay, what is the, the most funny things that you, okay, there are a lot of examples. Um, for example, during my observation, I've got a lot of shit on my head when I was observing chimpanzees or because they are terrible. Um, or um, I was surprised when, for example, I saw for the first time two gelada females in captivity in the Rhine Zoo embracing each other because they are able to, um, to express this behavior in many different, with many different posture. And uh, you see uh, two females approaching um, together, approaching each other, and uh, while lip spanking, and immediately one starts embracing the other one, and they maybe the first one begin to yawn, and the second respond with another yawn, and then begin begins to grow. And then it's also possible that they can pass their infants and they exchange their infants. So, or it's possible that the mother. Uh, provide her, her home infants to a non-mother female uh, to, and permit and allow her to manipulate and, uh, and handle the, the infant. So um, there are all, uh, other uh, examples come from chimpanzees that although they are terrible, but they are also able to incredible uh, performances. Uh, immediately, I was just um, uh, following a, a small video with a student of mine, uh, we, and I saw the alpha, the alpha male chimpanzee uh, attack in a violent way another subject, and uh, three, four subject adult females of the group immediately ran toward him, um, slap uh, his back try to, uh, to, to, to convince him to stop the attack. Uh, in the meanwhile, the other tried to catch uh, his arms uh, to, to, uh, to separate from the victim, him from the victim. So every day, if you are able to, uh, and you have the possibility to look at animals, you uh, immediately uh, you surprise and uh, and another another thing is that when in the South Africa we we began to follow lions and we realized that young contagion um, increased the probability that immediately after animals do the same thing together. So I yawn, you yawn, and immediately after we do the same thing in a perfect synchronization. So every kind of result is important, Absolutely. and uh, and and uh, it's wonderful to to observe animal uh, in any time in any uh, in any different kind of setting. So I'm I'm sure that who works in lab remains surprised as those who works in the wild, and uh, that remains surprised as those that work in captivity in the zoo. Um, I think that uh, animal behavior is extremely important because 
if you if we try to understand animal behavior, we also have important highlights also on our home behavior. Yes, wonderful. There's always something to see or observe. There's always something to learn. And, uh, and sometimes they're funny and sometimes they are like, you know, mind opening, I guess, just different. But like you say, it's important. Every, every piece is important, everything that we learn. So that's wonderful. And, and of course, you have published a lot of different papers. And you also have a collaborative book, which is The Missing Lemur Link, An Ancestral Step in Human Evolution. Can you talk to us a little bit about your collaborative book? Yes, I, the co-author of the book is Ivan Norsha, a colleague of mine working at the University of Turin. And we decided after many years I spent observing lemurs in captivity. So I, uh, I published a lot of papers on some, uh, on some aspects uh, on lemur behavior. And uh, we had also the opportunity to go to, to Madagascar to collect data on, in some cases, on the same topic we, I collected in captivity, but also on different topics. So we were able to gather a lot of data um, um, that, was, uh, that, were, um, that could be the basis for, for, for building uh, a book. Uh, in the meantime, we decided to, um, um, to um, organize the book uh, in different chapters, and each chapter uh, is focused on a specific behavior. And this, and this um, organization allows us to invite other scholars uh, to produce some boxes to put into each chapter. So it was extremely interesting because we uh, express our opinion, our data, we summarize our data obtained uh, across several years of work. But at the same time, we had the possibility to have uh, an exchange with many uh, researchers focusing maybe on the same topic, but on di in different species. And uh, so, um, this, the inclusion of these boxes within, within each chapter uh, gave us um, uh, gave the book the, 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 um, an even more comparative uh, organization. So uh, it was uh, it was funny, uh, it was tiring, <laughs> it was frustrating because we spent many many hours writing the book, especially during our weekends. So, uh, but I, I'm, I'm very happy and, uh, and I hope that uh, the, the, the book can help not, not only scholars, but also students to understand that uh, if we want something more about human behavior, we, we can look a little bit further and, uh, and, and back. So also lemur behavior can uh, uh, illuminate in the, uh, the evolution, about the evolution of fairy. Uh, of many uh, behavioral traits in humans. So, it, it, okay, looking at the great apes, that it's good, of course, but also uh, looking at um, less recent uh, species, uh, evolutionary species is, is good too. 
Absolutely. So we'll make sure there's going to be a link with this podcast for people to check out the book with lots of really, really interesting work and also a beautiful, beautiful cover. Um, so that's... Uh, yes. Yes. Thank you. Thank you, Ricardo Wasco, for, uh, for the present because uh, he participated uh, uh, with enthusiasm to, to, the, to the cover of the book. Yeah, it's, it's uh, just a beautiful, beautiful uh, cover and, of course, very invaluable content. So check out the book. And, uh, Elisabetta, in closing of this podcast, can you, you already, you know, shared some funny experiences, some, you know, maybe not so funny, funny when you were, um, you know, getting lots of feces uh, on, your, on your head. But can you share with us in conclusion a short story of, of a memorable experience um, with with an animal or a group of animals. Okay, um, more than more than experience, there are um, emotional experience. Uh, I was uh, extremely um, emotionally engaged when I saw for the first time mountain gorillas, or but also Indri in Madagascar uh, because they were they are. They, they were for me two iconic species that I try to uh, to see and to to get in touch for a long time. That when I was in front of uh, an Indri uh, male, I, I if I if I'm not wrong, if I'm right, I began I, I started crying as a baby. Um, I think that. It is, not only, it is not only the animal per se, but it was the uh, environment surrounding, surrounding me. So the, the forest, the, 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 the sounds of the forest and the, the song of Indri. So um, it was a completely, I was completely immersed in this beauty uh, and where each sense, uh, the visual, uh, the possibility to see, the possibility to hear, the possibility to smell was uh, uh, incredible. And um, um, this one, surely this is one of the most impacted, emotionally impacted moment to me. But I, I again, uh, I, mm, I was also extremely emotionally engaged when I saw for the first time the first uh, event of reconciliation and consolation in gorillas, for example. So um, it depends. Sometimes is the is the environment, is the species, but other time are the their incredible ability uh, to um, to enact behavior that make them so similar to us. Thank you. Yes, absolutely. And I, I could imagine that, you know, after decades and decades of watching animals and studying them in the wild and in, in zoos and aquariums and other captive settings, um, you know, you could put together a beautiful book on all the memorable, you know, experiences, emotional experiences of the of animals, of behaviors, of you know, the context. And and you know, I'm I really appreciate how you share you know, 
all those things also coming together, the smell and hearing, you know, the song of the Indre Lemur. And we'll, we'll put a little link to that because it's quite a, quite a beautiful sound. So, uh, but thank you so much for sharing and, and coming onto this podcast, you know, explaining some of the background. And uh, we, of course, highly encourage everybody listening. If you're interested to learn more, to go to your profile and learn more about play and conciliation and emotional contagion and so much more of what you're doing. So thank you so much, Elisabetta, for coming onto the podcast. Thank you to you, Sabrina, for the opportunity. Thank you so much. So this was the end of another wonderful podcast with lots of lots of details and really looking forward to diving deeper myself in some of these topics and also how some of this information is relevant to, of course, caring for the animals in uh, zoos, aquariums, sanctuaries and wherever else they might be. And well-being for you and your animals is too important not to get right. And at Animal Concepts, we help you care for animals and for yourself to be at your best to achieve excellence in animal care and welfare. And of course, supporting you in your other goals such as conservation. And PAUSE is the first online platform combining human and animal well-being science and practice where you can get the continued personal education, tools and resources you need so you and your animals can flourish. So if you feel inspired, follow the link in the podcast description to become a member today.